Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley. I'm often asked what the most fucked up case I've ever covered is, and until now, I'd always just kind of shrugged it off and said that each case has its own equal level of fucked upness or depravity, but all that changed with this case. What you're about to hear is by far the most heinous case that I have ever covered. You've been warned, your jaw will drop, and your heart will shatter. There is no place in this world for small talk, so let's dive in. On Sunday, May 24th, 2009, five-year-old Nevaeh Buchanan is enjoying a genuinely beautiful day in Monroe, Michigan, where she lives with her mom and her grandmother. Nevaeh's mom, Jennifer, says that she had invited a friend and her daughter to spend the night with them at their Charlotte Arms apartment the night before, and while the two moms stayed inside, Jennifer says that the two little girls went outside to play. 30 or 40 minutes later, at around 6.30 p.m., Nevaeh's little friend goes back to the apartment to tell Nevaeh's mom that Nevaeh was riding her scooter in the parking lot, which she knew she wasn't allowed to do. Jennifer says she heads outside to tell her daughter to get out of the street, but she's not there. They all panic and start to search the complex, thinking that maybe she just rode out of sight, even though she had never done that before. But there was absolutely no sign of Nevaeh. According to Jennifer, she's about 30 minutes into her search when she finds her daughter's scooter abandoned, and that's when she decides it's time to call police. On May 25th, an Amber Alert is issued for a five-year-old missing little girl out of Monroe, Michigan. Her name's Nevaeh Buchanan, and she was last seen at 8.15 p.m. the night before at 1166 North Macomb Street. It says that her bike was found abandoned in her apartment complex, but it's a scooter, not a bike. Early information on any case is usually a little spotty. It's also said that she was last seen at 8.15, but according to the friend who had last seen Nevaeh on her scooter, and when Jennifer allegedly went out to go look for her daughter, it was 6.30. So there's a significant time discrepancy here, which immediately perks my ears up. I anticipate some serious changes in this story. It's always interesting when you hear time discrepancies within transitional periods of the day. 6.30 p.m. looks significantly different in terms of daylight than 8.15 p.m. So this is more than just an assumption gone wrong. But back to Nevaeh's statistics. She's 3 foot 8 inches tall, weighs 45 pounds, and has brown hair and eyes. She was last seen wearing a red, white, and blue striped top, capri jeans, and she was not wearing any shoes. I'll include photos of Nevaeh on my Instagram under her case highlight at the top of my profile at the Heather Ashley, but let me tell you, she is beautiful. Now, let's take a second to talk about Monroe, Michigan, so you have an idea of the kind of area that we're working with. Here are some of the crime statistics from my favorite, areavibes.com. The national average for rape per 100,000 residents is 41.7 people. The average for Monroe per 100,000 people is 125.8. The national average for assault per 100,000 residents is 248.9 people. The average for Monroe per 100,000 people is 362.4. The national average for violent crimes per 100,000 residents is 394 people. The average for Monroe per 100,000 is 539. This is an area where crime rates are significantly higher than the national average when it comes to violent crimes. 
Police give an update that says that they are the ones who found Nevaeh's scooter abandoned in the parking lot, which is a different story than what we got from Jennifer, who says that she found it about 30 minutes into her search for her daughter. They immediately make it clear that they believe Nevaeh has been abducted and that she's in extreme danger. Authorities don't waste a single second of time and call out the Monroe County Special Response Team, various different crime units, along with scent tracking dogs, helicopters, you name it. Locals even catch wind that the fire department was called out to search behind a Kmart that the family had visited the day before. Now, this caught me really off guard at first, but Kmart is actually only about a half a block away across the street from where she lived. And there's a connecting path to a senior complex where it's apparently pretty common for kids in the area to play. A local who lives a few blocks farther down the road than that states that she's seen authorities searching the ditches by her house and that helicopters have been seen circling the area for hours. By 4 a.m. on the 25th, Fox 36 reports that law enforcement have the entire apartment complex completely blocked off and it's swarming with police activity. They're checking the trunks of any and all vehicles coming into and leaving the Charlotte Arms apartments. This makes my mommy heart shatter into a million pieces. I cannot imagine watching police check the trunks of strangers' vehicles for my baby. Jennifer says that she hasn't slept or eaten, and she's terrified that they're not going to find her little girl alive. Police plan to give the public an update around 11 a.m., and when they do, they drop a fucking bombshell. Sometime during the night, police took Nevaeh's mother's friend, George Kennedy, into custody. The friend she knew was a registered sex offender who had been released from state prison in 2008, just a year before. The friend that she allowed her daughter to refer to as Daddy George. The Toledo Blade reports that George had been convicted of one count of attempted criminal sexual misconduct and one count of attempted children accosting for immoral purposes. In 1998, he was charged with having sex with someone under 16, but it looks like that charge was eventually dismissed. In 2002, he was charged with accosting a 13-year-old girl and having sex with yet another girl under the age of 16. And, and... It turns out that mom isn't so on the up and up either. She was just released from prison herself literally at the end of January, four months ago. She was in for home invasion of the first degree. Nancy Grace says that CPS had actually previously been involved with Nevaeh's family and suggested Nevaeh be removed from the home. Basically, this is an episode of Jerry Springer meets America's Most Wanted. The Toledo Blade says that when Jennifer couldn't find Nevaeh, she immediately called George freaking Kennedy. And when I say immediately, I mean immediately. Before she called police, before she passed go, she called her sex offender friend as if he was a bloodhound with supersonic Batman skills for tracking down children. George says that as soon as he got the call, he rushed over to Nevaeh's preschool with his girlfriend, Savannah, thinking that Nevaeh may be playing back there, and when they didn't find her there, they then searched the Greenwood Apartments. Somewhere around 10 p.m., police find out that Jennifer has a sex offender friend who's out looking for her daughter, and they decide they want to have a chat with him. So Jennifer calls George to let him know, and she picks him up, and they head back to his room at the Motel 7. No, I'm not making this up. 
There were actually three registered sex offenders rumored to be staying at that very same Motel 7 at the time of Nevaeh's disappearance. It's not uncommon for specific low-rent hotels to be transition homes for criminals after their release, but he was staying there for a mere $20 a night, which a 24-year-old named Tanya was paying for. Tanya is not his girlfriend, by the way. Awkward. Tanya Moneybanks actually ran an in-home daycare at the Willow Green Mobile Home Park called Tanya's Little Helping Hands. Let that sink in. Do we really know anyone? Anyways, it's at this Motel 7 that George meets up with police and his parole officer to quote-unquote clear his name. But it turns out that he had violated his parole by being in a relationship with someone with a child under the age of 17 and was taken into custody. Sex offenders who get conditionally released before serving out their sentence have a list of things they can't do. And if you break those rules, you get revoked and go back to jail to serve out the remainder of your sentence. According to Click on Detroit, George had consistent issues when it came to his parole. He was known to be defiant when it came to his conditions, had a history of assaulting women, anger management issues, threatening behavior, and even had a relationship with a woman who had a four-year-old child. I'm going to try and stay objective here because I don't suck at what I do, and I'll note that he's been in custody almost the entire time the search has been going on, so it sounds like they still have very little information about where Nevaeh may be or what might have happened to her, so it doesn't sound like he had much information to give them. In an article published by Click on Detroit, commenters have started discussing rumors that a transient in the area has confessed to taking the little girl and told police that she's in the quarry. That transient just so happens to be none other than George Kennedy's brother, whom Jennifer is also said to have some kind of relationship with. What a bloodline. Police searched the quarry behind the Motel 7 that George was staying in, along with the room he was renting. The search of the quarry results in nothing, but his hotel room was a house of horrors. In the tiny room no bigger than the cell he had just come from, there was a suitcase full of photographs... Bloodstained shorts and a bloodstained shirt, blood on the wall above the bathroom sink, a multi-tool used for fishing with blood on it, a condom on the floor, along with children's toys. What the fuck? George's brother is questioned and released. The quarry search wound up being routine and had nothing to do with him. Everything involving George's brother is all chalked up to rumor and we never hear about him again. The Detroit News tracks down Nevaeh's biological father, Shane, who claims he hasn't seen his daughter in more than three years, despite the fact that he only lives half an hour down the road. He's been estranged from his daughter since before she was ever born. Try and keep up with this family tree really quickly. Shane, Nevaeh's biological father, left Jennifer for Jennifer's brother's girlfriend, so the Buchanan family held a bit of a grudge. Police ask Shane to take a polygraph test, and they ask Jennifer to take one as well. Monroe News reports that both parents failed some of the questions on the lie detector test. Jennifer blames failing the test on a lack of sleep. You'll be thrilled to know that even though she hadn't had time for adequate sleep, she did have time to log into her MySpace account because priorities. According to a local, one of their news stations states later that she tried the polygraph two more times and failed those attempts as well. Now, lie detector tests aren't admissible in court because they're not always reliable and some people are able to beat them and some people take them and fail them when they're not lying at all. So take her failures with a grain of salt. It's an investigative tool, but that's about it. And frankly, you couldn't pay me to take a lie detector test. I'm not taking the chance that you tell me I failed some bullshit test that you can't even use in court and then you spend all of your time looking at me when someone else is out there with my baby. Go fuck yourself. 
Sorry, let me tell you how I really feel. Anyways, in this winding web of parental figures, it turns out that neither Nevea's mom nor her dad had custody of her. Jennifer's mother, Nevea's grandmother, did. Media outlets interview Jennifer and Shane any chance they get, and sideline detectives, like myself, start analyzing their behavior. Some say mom seems very matter-of-fact when she tells the news she's almost 100% certain that her daughter has been abducted, which police agree with. Meanwhile, Shane, who hasn't seen his daughter in three years, is a puddle on the floor. A person claiming to be a friend of the family starts posting on Monroe Talks, a message board connected to one of their news sources, and says that police are looking into security footage from around the area and try to pinpoint which direction Nevaeh may have gone in and who may have taken her. There's hope that some of the schools, churches, apartment complexes, the local hospital, and the senior complex may have had some working cameras. ABC7 Detroit does an update on the case on their 11 o'clock news, and I cannot hear the words coming out of my mouth because all I can see is what looks like Nevaeh's mother's growing baby bump. Oh my gosh. Now, it's never substantiated, it's never confirmed or denied that she's pregnant, but if she is, oh my gosh. The Monroe news site Gossip Queen start coming out of the woodwork and their posts do not disappoint. One offers up that Jennifer, Nevaeh's mom, robbed a car dealership while four-month-old Nevaeh was left in a running car. Another says that on May 22nd, just two days prior to Nevaeh's disappearance, she was seen playing outside alone at 10 p.m. in the dark at the Willow Green Trailer Park. I suppose Tanya was fresh out of helping hands. The poster also says that George used to work with her boyfriend and was fired for using and selling drugs. Where in the free hell is social services? This little girl was in a lifelong game of duck, duck, felon. Nevaeh's paternal grandmother isn't holding back her feelings either. She tells HLN that if we would have had her, we wouldn't all be standing here right now. And while I don't necessarily disagree with what she's saying, this lady wasn't involved in Nevaeh's life whatsoever. Jennifer's brother Mike and Nevaeh's dad are both mortified that she had a registered sex offender so intertwined in Nevaeh's life, and rightfully so. Mike says that he argued with Jennifer on numerous occasions about having George around his niece, but said that in the end, Jennifer's an adult and there's only so much he can do. Uh, you can call his parole officer and CPS. Nevaeh's father and grandmother both suspect that Jennifer has something to do with this, they just aren't sure what. A private investigator who's a friend of the family organizes a search on the evening of the 26th at 6 p.m. They welcome anyone to come out and says that they'll be searching behind the Kmart yet again. We talked about the Kmart being connected to a complex by a path that the kids were known to play on. But remember, that path connected to a senior complex. Nevaeh's apartment complex was across the street. So if she was in fact playing back there, who helped her cross the street? This isn't a little hop, skip, and a jump street either. She would have had to cross over four lanes of traffic. Authorities, who now include the FBI, say that they have over 100 law enforcement officers on the ground at any given time, and they haven't taken a break since they started searching two days ago. While we wait for any new updates about this sweet little girl, news articles get any bits and pieces that they can, and it helps us get a little clarification into the time discrepancies between 6.30 and 8.15 p.m., 6.30 is when Jennifer started looking for Nevaeh. Jennifer called George ASAP. She didn't call police for another hour and 45 minutes. Fuck my life, you guys. 
Nevaeh's mom alleges that she called her sex offender BFF because they've been friends for years and he calls her almost every morning. She says that when she called him, he seemed genuinely shocked and in disbelief and according to him, he jumped right into his car and went out looking for Nevaeh. Jennifer told one news outlet that Nevaeh would have been comfortable enough to get into a car with George, but in a later statement says that she can't see George doing anything to her daughter, but wouldn't put it past him. What did I just read? Did no one teach this woman how to make friends? <sighs> Jennifer slips up and tells Detroit Free Press that she was the last one to see her daughter, not her friend's little girl that Nevaeh was allegedly playing with who went inside to tell Jennifer that she was playing in the street. So now the timeline is complete garbage. Police now want to know about anything that happened between Nevaeh, Jennifer, and George from 5 p.m. through 11 p.m. on the evening of the 24th. On the 27th, police hold a press conference and pretty much just give us a rundown of everything that we already know, being sure to include the fact that she called her sex offender friend more than an hour before she ever called police. As stated before, the police say that they're the ones that found Nevaeh's scooter in the parking lot, contrary to earlier reports where Jennifer says that she found the scooter after searching for about half an hour, and that's when she called police, but we knew that was bullshit because she didn't call police for well over an hour, in fact, almost two hours after Nevaeh disappeared. Authorities say that George is a person of interest, but at this time, Jennifer is not. When asked about the bloody multi-tool, police had no comment, and when asked if they think Nevaeh is still alive, they again respond with no comment. A reward for information leading to the discovery of Nevaeh has been set at $2,500. That evening, police activity at the quarry picks up and locals start spreading word about what they see, and it's not good. At one point, they watch as what looks like an ambulance backs up to the quarry. But all fears are put to rest when by the end of the night, nothing has been found, and that includes Nevaeh. And while that means she's still missing, it also means that she wasn't in the quarry. The silver lining in criminal cases can be eerily dark. So, so, so many people volunteer to search for Nevaeh, and the photos that the Detroit News shares of these searches are probably some of the most emotional ones I have ever seen. Seeing the terrain they're searching, thick brushes, ditches, and knowing that they're looking for such a sweet, young, innocent little girl literally crushes my heart. I'll add them to my Instagram under Nevaeh's highlight at the top of my profile at the Heather Ashley. Post-search, HLN comes through with the details, and they are soul-crushing. WXYZ Detroit, which is the easiest station's name to remember ever, get a hold of an affidavit that mentions child witness statements about what happened to Nevaeh that day, but they don't share them with the public. But another station does. WTOL reports that a little boy and a little girl that she had been playing with on Sunday stated that they saw Nevaeh walk into the woods with Daddy George. The little boy said Nevaeh was kidnapped by a bad man and stabbed in the stomach. Now let's take a second to acknowledge that these kids had been interviewed before and allegedly hadn't seen anything. It's not until their second interview that the talk of Daddy George and the stabbing comes about. Remember that a friend got Nevaeh's mom because she was riding her scooter in the street, not because she was getting stabbed in the woods. However, if it was true and Jennifer is lying about what the kids came in and told her, that might explain why she called George instead of the police. But let's go on. 
The media coverage for this case has been astronomical, and everyone in the complex is hearing about the case 24-7. So for the kids to go from not seeing anything unusual to both saying that she went into the woods with George Kennedy, I may take it with a grain of salt, but alas, it was said, and it's part of the case, so we will include it. But then, the winds change direction. It's circulating that George had an alibi from 4 to 7 p.m. that night. The alibi is none other than his girlfriend, Savannah, but wasn't Savannah with him until he went back to his motel room? And if Jennifer didn't call 911 until 8.15, he wouldn't have been called back to his room until after that. So why does his alibi stop more than an hour short of his own version of events? Savannah says she was with George all day until 7.30 p.m. However, George said that he got the call from Jennifer and then picked up Savannah to go searching for Nevaeh. So we play Ring Around the Truth again. Savannah says George dropped her off at 7.30 p.m. to give a friend a ride and then came back and got her at 8 p.m. One, who gives a friend a ride in the middle of looking for a friend's missing child? Um, I know I'm a sex offender, but I'm looking for a missing child. It's a long story. I'll pick you up in like 10. Two, why would he need to drop Savannah off to give someone else a ride? This was a vehicle, not a banana bike. Jennifer says she didn't pick up George to bring him back to his motel room until 10.30 p.m., but why did he need a ride from Jennifer when he was just out playing Uber three hours prior? None of this alibi makes any sense, and frankly, when people's alibis are as shady as they are, I don't think they count, but I don't make the rules. Was George not ruled out but not looking as guilty as he once did, investigators start searching the homes of any and all registered sex offenders in the area. On May 28th, the Detroit News announces that a new person of interest has been taken into custody, Roy Smith, who is none other than a sex offender friend of George freaking Kennedy and an associate of Nevaeh's mother, Jennifer. I am shocked. No, I'm not. And even creepier news, Roy had just lent his van to George the other day. What a fucking coincidence. And you know how I feel about coincidences. Jennifer tells the Detroit News that she doesn't know Roy very well, that she's very careful about who met her daughter. Uh, bullshit. Everyone's gonna need to step aside to avoid the bolt of lightning that's about to beam down from the sky. Roy was paroled in 2008 on charges of third-degree criminal sexual misconduct after he was convicting of raping a 24-year-old woman. He also has a history of breaking and entering, much like his friends George and Jennifer. A rumor starts to circle about a mysterious letter written from Jennifer to George that allegedly says, if you don't pay my drug debt, you won't be able to have Nevaeh anymore. And I think we all just felt our hearts sink into our butts. To make matters worse, it looks like this letter may not be a rumor at all. Police did find a note to George from Jennifer ripped up in her bathroom trash can. She had intended on sending it to George, you know, the person of interest in the case of her missing daughter who's currently sitting in prison, for even being around her. According to the Detroit Free Press, Jennifer claims that the letter police confiscated is innocent and that it didn't mention her daughter or George spending time with her. But let's be real, people don't rip shit up and throw it in the garbage if it's nothing. I might throw something in the garbage, but if I'm ripping it up, it's because you're going to be putting one hell of a puzzle together if you want to read it bad enough. Jennifer says that the letter was written to tell him that she would take care of his personal business while he was in jail. Oh, it's cool. You're a person of interest in the disappearance of my daughter, but I'll make sure your debts are paid. You've got money on your books and your shit gets put into storage. Get the fuck out of here. 
On May 29th, police hold yet another press conference, and it's one of the ones they have because they feel like the public wants one, but they really offer nothing new. Literally, everything was no comment, and they said the blood evidence results still weren't back yet, but they've put a rush on them. The only ear-catching moment during the conference was when someone asked if Jennifer was a person of interest, and there was a significant pause before they replied, no comment. Remember, sometimes what they don't say is just as telling as what they do. The Detroit News interviews Jennifer, and she's caught using the past tense yet again. She had done this before, but I always take it with a grain of salt because when people are stressed out, they might not be paying a whole lot of attention to the tenses they're using. But this time, it's a little more egregious. I'm more determined than anything, Buchanan said. I adored her. Everything I did was for her. She was my everything. It's been five days. It hasn't been five months. She was my everything is a little heavy. And you guys know I'm not one to harp on people's use of past and present tense, but this one is off. If my daughter had been missing for five days, I'd be sobbing and screaming into the TV cameras that she is my everything, that I do adore her, and that everything I do is for her. But hey, that's me and Jennifer and I have some fundamental differences. Police redeploy helicopters over the Monroe area. They're seen circling around by locals, saying that they were flying incredibly low, which may have something to do with a search of the wooded area next to Jennifer's apartment complex. The Toledo Blade reports seeing two prisoners wearing orange jumpsuits taking part in the search. This usually means that the prisoners gave some sort of tip. Remember the Zara Baker case when her stepmom was taken with authorities to point out where they had left her little body. Then it happens, you guys. The blood results come back, and it's not Nevaeh's. I did not see that coming. And with that, authorities announced that while no one's been ruled out, they're shifting their focus away from both George and Roy. And while police say they don't have any reason to believe that Nevaeh is dead, they do say that they have evidence that she's been stabbed. What? Where did this come from? How? Why? There's another press conference held on May 30th with a bunch of the same stuff, no real update, but another case of maybe this means something. During the press conference, they reassure the public that they'll stay on the case until they recover Nevea. And a recovery is generally a search for a body, not a missing living person. You'll remember the Thomas Brown case was changed to a recovery at one point, indicating that they didn't think he was alive. However, police continued on in the press conference, saying that they're holding out hope that she's still alive. Monroe Talks is exploding with hearsay, and that's not to say that it isn't true, but the forum is not an official outlet, so let's just preface with that. They say that a news helicopter can be seen hovering over Detroit Beach, and that they may have found some clothes over there. More comes out about a home on Oak Street, which seems to be within a stone's throw from Nevaeh's apartment. The rumors are that police are searching the duplex and have been seen bringing out evidence bags and that the owner has been burning things in an outdoor fire pit for the last few days. According to the posters, one of whom went and drove by the duplex said the fire pit is now covered with a tarp and police and news crews are still out there taking pictures and they even said that Jennifer was there. And while she's at the duplex on Oak Street, locals say that she hasn't been volunteering in any of the searches for her daughter. The news catches up with the local chatter, and WXYZ says that the house on Oak Street belongs to 64-year-old James Easter, who was charged in 2000 with indecent exposure. 
James Easter's mother apparently lives in the same apartment complex as Nevaeh and frequents the area regularly, though I've heard it was his girlfriend that lived in the complex. I have heard more confirmation that it was his mother and that he visited to help take care of her. His neighbors say that other than constantly burning things, he's a pretty quiet dude who keeps to himself. In this instance, every single bit of chatter from Monroe Talks checked out here. Police were called when someone saw a car dump children's clothes. The caller gave the license plate, which led them to James Easter's house, who had been burning things for days. In his house, they found a huge stash of porn, Ted Bundy shit, every article written about Nevaeh except for two. He had pulled out almost all of his own teeth. His family does not allow him to see his own granddaughter, and he failed a polygraph about Nevaeh. During questioning, they ask him, if he did it, how would he have done it? And this dummy actually answers the fucking question. <laughs> he says he would have taken his car to the back of the nail salon and called Nevaeh to it with a Kit Kat candy bar. Oh my gosh, I'm so creeped out. And while all this is weird and creepy and he's not a neighbor I'd ever want to have, there's no real ties to him and Nevaeh as far as the case goes. So after 12 hours of questioning, James is released at 5 a.m. and was back to his normal burning routine within five minutes. It was a sex toy and receipts that he had already shown police. Not weird at all. But I mean, I always say people with nothing to hide hide nothing, so maybe he literally has nothing to hide or maybe he has nothing to lose. If you guessed that there was yet another press conference held on May 31st, you would be correct. But this time, they asked for help finding two little boys, Ryan and Dylan, who were seen playing at Hollywood School Playground around the time Nevaeh went missing. They'd like to know if they might have seen anything. They also say that they want to give the public updates and all the information they have, but they don't want the perpetrator to know what they're working with, which is why there are so many no-comment answers. They say that James is being arraigned on unrelated charges of preparation to burn property under $200. I assumed it wasn't too serious, since it seemed to be a releasable warrant. And the search continues, and it takes less than one single day for police to get in contact with Ryan and Dylan, but nothing seems to come of it. Jennifer does an interview with radio show hosts Dominsky and Doyle and honestly is golden. In the interview about her missing daughter, she makes sure to defend sex offenders and her decision to surround her daughter with them. She says that anyone could be a sex offender, you'd never know, and that not all sex offenders reoffend. I can only imagine how many times she's repeated that to herself. She also defends why she hasn't been taking part in the massive searches for her daughter and says that it's because she's searching with her own friends because they know her. And I remind you, this is a search for her daughter, not herself. Come June, the updates get less and less frequent. There's a rumor about police looking for a green van. Some say it was seen at the apartment complex around the time she went missing. Some say that someone in a green van tried to abduct a little boy in Toledo. Who knows? The only fact here is that anyone who has a green van has questionable judgment. There's another rumor that the FBI escorted Jennifer from her apartment on June 2nd. Nevaeh's biological dad's mom, the paternal grandmother, the one who said none of this would be happening if Nevaeh was with them, gets busted for raising $2,000 in Nevaeh's honor and then taking the money and running. Her dad, Shane, told his mom to essentially rotten hell and that she should go to jail, and it's said that she said that she would just bail herself out with the money. 
This poor girl has no one of substance. Her dad's mom wasn't devastated. Nevaeh was just a cash cow for her. She was nothing but an opportunity, and it makes me so big fucking mad that I'm pretty sure laser beams are coming out of my eyes. Three days pass. On June 4th, the Detroit News publishes that a child's body has been found wearing clothing similar to what Nevaeh was last reported seen wearing. But it's not that simple. The body was found by a river just a few miles from where she lived, encased in a cement block. A teen and his dad, Ryan and Guy Bickley, were out fishing when they stumbled upon it. They were standing on it when it started to crumble and noticed a horrible smell coming from it. His dad chipped away at the cement until he saw skin, saying it looked like half of a child's back, so he called 911. This area is down a steep embankment with large rocks leading you down to the water. It's a well-known fishing spot for locals, but from what I can gather, you'd have to be really familiar with the area to be in this exact spot. It's not a, hey, let's hide the body here kind of place. It's more of a, if I ever needed to hide a body, it would be here. Locals see helicopters flying above, but FBI nor police are willing to comment on whether or not it's Nevaeh. News trucks and reporters have actually been asked to stay two blocks away from where they've shut the roads down surrounding the embankment. Police speak later that night and say that a little girl was found in a shallow grave that instead of being filled back in with dirt was filled in with quickcrete. This specific kind of cement is designed to harden within 20 to 40 minutes. One item of evidence they locate at the scene is a burnt 90-pound bag of quickcrete. Only a few stores in the area sell them, and one of them is Coleman Cement, which is located directly behind the Motel 7 that George Kennedy stayed at. To add insult to injury, Coleman Cement says that they recently had their fence cut. Another item they found was a Custer beer can, which was actually mixed in the cement with Nevea. Custer beer is local to Monroe, so whoever put her there is likely from the area. They also find remnants of a fire, a burnt surgical glove, and some cigarette butts. A press conference is given on June 5th saying that the police believe the body to be Nevea's but cannot confirm it at this time. An autopsy is currently being performed and is expected to finish by noon. They add that there are no signs of trauma to the body. Within days, Nancy Grace, Michigan State Police, and Monroe County Sheriff's Office break the news that the body found in the concrete grave on the banks of the river is, in fact, the body of little Nevaeh Buchanan. It feels so final, like maybe if you had kept searching, you could have changed the outcome, but you can't. What's done is done, and what was done to this sweet little girl cannot be taken back, and no matter how hard anyone searched for her, she was never going to be found alive. Her funeral is held on June 14th at the Stewart Road Church of God and paid for by an anonymous donor. A tiny white casket is pulled behind a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, taking her to her final resting place in St. Joseph's Cemetery. Multicolored balloons are released by the 500 members of the community who attend as she passes by. Her funeral was, in all senses of the word, beautiful, but so unbelievably tragic. There should be no such thing as small coffins. After Nevaeh is put to rest, all reports of her case go dormant, as if there isn't someone still out there responsible for what happened to this little girl, as if just because she was found, the case is now closed. It isn't until July 5th that we get any new updates, and it's that police are looking into 400 sex offenders in the Monroe area. What the fuck are they doing out in Monroe? Is there a convention I don't know about? 
On July 14th, 2009, this case gets worse. And while I didn't think that was physically possible, it reaches a whole new, undefinable level of fucked up. Nevaeh's autopsy results come back to show that her cause of death was asphyxiation and that little Nevaeh was likely buried alive. They found soil in Nevaeh's windpipe and down into her lungs. She was found face down. She had likely been placed into the shallow grave alive as they poured the concrete on top of her, or her face was pushed into the ground until she suffocated in the dirt, and as she laid there lifeless, they poured a 90-pound bag of concrete on top of her tiny little body and watched it harden around her. The autopsy mentions nothing about sexual assault or trauma to Nevaeh's body, but her mother says that they found no signs of either, and the only substance found in her system was caffeine, which I'm sure came from soda. All of this begs the question of why. Motive is what drives crime. What's the motive if there was no sexual assault, no trauma to her body, no ransom demands, nothing? It's as if she was taken just to be killed and buried under almost 100 pounds of cement. But that doesn't make sense. There has to be more that police aren't telling anyone, especially Nevaeh's mom. Remember, they said that they had reason to believe that she had been stabbed. So I'm wondering if the no trauma thing is a little purposeful misleading by the police. Remember that when the fishermen found her body in the concrete, they saw her exposed back. So was she not wearing a shirt? Is it possible that the shirt was located earlier in the investigation and it had some form of slash through it or blood on it that indicated a stab wound? Police continue their investigation, but there really isn't much in the realm of progress. They take some carpet fiber samples from the upstairs apartment of a little boy that she was said to be playing with the day that she went missing to see if they matched fibers found under Nevaeh's fingernails, which only gives me a haunting image of the sweet girl clawing at the floor, trying not to be dragged away by her captors. But the collection of these fibers wasn't to say that the man upstairs was a suspect or even a person of interest like a lot of people initially thought when they heard this. The entire complex has the same carpeting, and he just happened to be the first person to answer the door when police were looking to get a carpet sample. They did wind up taking samples from other apartments as well. From what I understand, they were trying to determine whether or not the carpet fibers under Nevaeh's fingernails came from her own apartment complex or if they came from somewhere else. And then, radio silence. And I don't mean that press conferences get less and less frequent and that articles are left pleading for any information about Nevaeh. I mean, everything stops. It's as if they found her body and that's the catalyst that stalled the entire investigation. We finally found out what happened to her during her heinously painful last breaths and nothing. The two persons of interest from earlier are still in jail, but on totally different charges, completely unrelated to Nevaeh, and all forensic testing so far has seemed to lead away from them. In late August 2009, a $20,000 reward is offered for any information that leads to the arrest of Nevaeh's killer, but still, nothing happens. The Monroe News spreads the word about a spaghetti dinner fundraiser being held on the 30th to raise money for a memorial bench like the one that we saw in Mason Smith's case. They hope to put it up at the Riverside Early Childhood Development Center. The spaghetti dinner was put on by extended members of Nevaeh's family, and her mother was nowhere to be seen. On October 7th, WXYZ News talks about a new poster that police have released asking for any information about Nevaeh, and while it's not much, it's something, which is more than what's been happening since they found her body in June. 
On October 26th, MSNBC takes a crap on all of our remaining hope for justice and says that there are now officially zero suspects in the murder of five-year-old Nevaeh Buchanan. The armchair detective in me wants to know about the DNA on the beer can. What was the expiration date on the can? It was local to Monroe, so how many people bought that batch and who were they? Cross-reference that with the very few stores that sold 90-pound bags of Quickrete and who purchased any of those around the time Nevaeh went missing and boom, there's our suspect. What about surveillance cameras? Can we get CCTV footage from the places who sold the particular Monroe beer and the places who sold the 90-pound bags of Quickrete and see if there are any vehicles in common around the time Nevaeh went missing? But I'm not the police and I'll give it to them on this one. They have worked their asses off, so I can only assume that they did all this. Right? I hope. February 3rd, 2010 comes and goes. Nevaeh would have been six today, and police are no closer to bringing her justice than they were the day that she disappeared. On February 15th, a news station, I believe it was an ABC affiliate, was scheduled to talk to a sergeant about where Nevaeh's case stands, but apparently the Monroe County Sheriff pulled the plug and said that there would be no on-camera interviews about Nevaeh. This is the kind of shit that gets me big mad when people just stop talking about something important, when it feels like there's something that someone is trying to hide and all you're looking for is justice for an innocent five-year-old girl who was abducted and buried alive. But police say that they're trying to keep some information close to the vest, information that only Nevaeh's killer would know. And according to the Detroit Free Press, this includes showing no one, not even Nevaeh's family, the clothes she was wearing when she was found. So, my shirt theory still remains. On May 4th, 2010, Click on Detroit does an interview with Nevaeh's grandmother and her brother Mike. Remember the one whose girlfriend Nevaeh's dad stole? Seriously, what a shit show. Anyways, Mike claims that the FBI had asked him to wear a wire to record conversations with his sister Jennifer. The FBI denies this. One of them is telling the truth. On May 30th, 2010, Justice for Nevaeh holds a carnival in honor of the anniversary of her abduction. They tell the Detroit Free Press that they wanted to gear it towards children and also equip parents with knowledge and resources on how to protect their kids from other tragic events like Nevaeh's murder. The reward for information leading to the arrest of Nevaeh's killer is bumped up to $22,500. A new missing persons poster starts making its way around town, starting near the river where Nevaeh's body was found and making its way to her final resting place where she was buried in her tiny white coffin. And it has a note from Nevaeh to her killer. It reads, Tell me, how do you sleep at night knowing what you did to me? When you fall asleep, do you hear my heart beating? Do you hear me breathing, giggling, crying? You were once five just like me. Tell me, did I deserve this? The reward for information leading to the arrest of Nevaeh's killer is almost doubled to $50,000. Nevaeh's seventh birthday comes and goes, and her killer is still out there. On May 27, 2011, there were two dedication ceremonies in Nevaeh's honor. One was an apple tree planted outside of her preschool classroom at the Riverside Early Childhood Development Center, and another was a little playground, Nevaeh's Playscape, at the Moose Family Center. It's a little playground geared towards smaller children with a dedicated parent area so that they can keep a close eye on their kids. Time passes slowly, but the community group Justice for Nevaeh has no quit. They hold events for every holiday that garner hundreds of guests every time and even decorate a tree at her gravesite. Her eighth birthday passes. 
In May of 2012, the police announced that they're getting closer to finding her killer and no longer believe that the public is in danger, which leads me to believe that whoever they think it is is likely in jail on another offense. But another year passes and the sheriff retires and the community wonders if they were really that close to charging someone would the sheriff have retired without bringing them to justice. But he tells Monroe News, we know who the perpetrator is, and tells the news station that the case has taken so long to resolve because they want to make sure that they secure a conviction after the arrest. He says he will never quit when it comes to Nevaeh, and honestly, I believe him. The fifth anniversary of Nevaeh's disappearance comes and goes. In 2014, Ray Casonas of Monroe News writes an article about the person police believes is responsible for Nevaeh's murder. They say he's in his 30s and was born and raised in Monroe. He had a troubled past where he fought with his family, got bad grades, and was often suspended from school. He's known to beat women and is currently in prison on felony charges. He was interviewed extensively about Nevaeh's murder but has never confessed, though Ray says an investigator who chose not to be named says he's 99.999% sure that he is the one who killed Nevaeh. Another year passes and no arrests are made. Her 13th birthday comes and goes, then her 14th, then her 15th. It's been more than 10 years since Nevaeh was brutally murdered on the banks of River Raisin in Monroe, Michigan, and not a single person has ever been held responsible for the torture they put her through. It's hard to hear about cases that involve children, but there's always some hope that they didn't suffer. The absolute worst part of Nevaeh's case is knowing that she did suffer, knowing that she was gasping for air when all she could get was dirt, clawing at the carpet, scared and confused. I will follow this case until the day her killer is charged and brought to justice, and I will update you as soon as any ounce of an update is available. Join me tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for our Crime Talk Live, where I go live with you on my Instagram at TheHeatherAshley, and we talk about your thoughts and theories surrounding today's case. If you love this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get notifications when new episodes are posted. And if you're feeling fancy, drop us a rating or a review. We appreciate every single one of them. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 